Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. Uh, my name is James Gethin-Evans here at the Fairbank Centre for Chinese Studies. And along with my co-conspirator, Nargis Casanova at the Davis Centre for Russian and Eurasian Studies at Harvard University, we are very pleased to welcome you all to today's panel on Shaping China's Narratives, How Journalists Report on China in the World. Uh, today, we have a real treat for you all. Uh, we will hear from three journalists who report on China from various parts of the globe. Uh, and we will have a moderated discussion. Our first speaker is Anant Krishnan. He's the China correspondent for the Hindu newspaper and is currently based in Hong Kong. He's a former visiting fellow at Brookings India and an Asia Global Fellow at the University of Hong Kong. He's reported from China for close to a decade and is the author of uh, India's China Challenge, A Journey Through China's Rise and What It Means for India. Um, our second panelist is Lulu Ninghui, She's an award-winning journalist and editor, and she currently leads the international news desk of Initium Media, which is a Chinese media platform focusing on independent and in-depth reporting. Since 2016, her reporting has focused on China's various connections with the international community, uh, and she pays special attention to politics, economy, and the environment. Our third panelist is Alexander Gabuyev. Uh, senior fellow and chair of the, Rus of the Russia in the Asia-Pacific program at the Carnegie Moscow Center. His research is focused on Russia's policy towards East and Southeast Asia, political and ideological trends in China, and China's relations with its neighbors in Central Asia. Prior to joining Carnegie, Alexander was a member of the editorial board of Commerçant, which is a publishing house, uh, and he served as deputy editor-in-chief of the Commerçant Vlast, which is one of Russia's most influential newsweeklies. Uh, today's discussion will be a slightly different format uh, from our previous events. Um, today's discussion will be moderated by Lucy Hornby, who is an award-winning foreign correspondent, uh, and she's reported from Asia for many years for the Financial Times, Reuters, and Dow Jones. Um, at Harvard, she was a 2020 fellow at the Neiman Foundation for Journalism, uh, and she's currently in residence here at the Fairbank Center as a visiting scholar. Um, during the event, if you have questions, please feel free to use the Q&A function in Zoom or via YouTube. And for now, I'd like to invite Lucy Hornby to get the discussion started. Thanks, James, uh, and thanks everybody for coming, uh, as well as all of our audience. Um, I thought I'd kick off by just saying that when we were planning this event, um, we discussed how often perceptions of China overseas are shaped by what I'll broadly call the sort of Anglo-American media and the European media um, who make up uh, quite a few of the sort of vocal members of the foreign correspondents uh, based in China. Um, but today what's interesting to me is we've got people who are reporting for very different audiences and very large audiences at that um, and audiences that are engaging uh, in China in a very direct way often. Um, and so I'd like to kick off by asking Ananth um, how he thinks about his audience uh, when he's picking his stories um, and, and, and how you span uh, the difference, especially because you're writing in English, uh, between a global English speaking audience and the more specific concerns maybe um, of the readers of the Hindu Times. Well, thank you so much for having me today and a pleasure to see you all and to join you. Um, I think that it's quite interesting when you think of uh, what you just mentioned in your question of this dichotomy that you usually hear about of this Western narrative on China and a Chinese narrative. And uh, as an Indian, I always find that debate kind of interesting uh, because it, it's a dichotomy that's in, in, in a strange way 
uh, supported by the Chinese government as well, because you have the, the so-called sort of biased Western narrative versus the Chinese narrative. And when I think about that, um, if there was an Indian narrative, I don't think it quite e it fits uh, in either of those two categories. Uh, I think in terms of what we focus on and what we report on, uh, a focus tends to be the bilateral relationship uh, only because uh, quite frankly, no one else really covers it with the with the detail and, and depth and complexity uh, that the India-China relationship has. So when it's covered usually uh, by an international media organization, it's usually when there's a crisis at the border or when it's something that's headline grabbing. But it's actually, in, when you look at the complexity of the relationship, you have a booming trade relationship, you have Chinese investing in India in a big way. And of course, you have the, the very, very complicated history of the political relationship and the boundary dispute. So I think it does keep our hands uh, tied. I just keep our plate quite full to focus on the bilateral relationship uh, only because no one else is doing it. Um, and it doesn't really make sense for us to kind of replicate what others are doing, uh, especially when you have huge bureaus, you know, Lucy, of, of whether it's Reuters or the AP or someone else in Beijing, we, we can't do those stories sometimes just because we don't have those resources. So... Uh, so obviously we do think of our audience, we try to do something that they don't get anywhere else. I'd say that's that's one sort of leading impulse that I have when I do a story. I want to do something that they can't find uh, in the FT or Reuters or somewhere else. Um, and another point that uh, I, I just wanted to sort of flag to get this discussion going was when I think of the, the Indian perspective on China, and I'm generalizing here, there are many Indian perspectives on China, of course. Uh, but I, I find it quite interesting how it kind of occupies a really unique uh, position. Uh, for instance, uh, there are similarities with what Western media are interested in. If you look at India being a democracy on human rights issues, uh, on Tibet, because of the very sort of unique uh, relations India has with Tibet. But on the other hand, uh, you also have uh, India and China being fellow developing countries, members of the global south, uh, kind of looking at China from down on the development curve, not like how uh, a journalist from the US or UK might. We look at things China has done right, what India can learn from. Uh, so I think it's a very sort of a unique space uh, and a, that, uh, that I think an Indian vantage point offers. Um, and I, I, as you said in your question as well, it probably doesn't get all that much attention. So, so I do appreciate the fact that you got these voices together today. And uh, I know certainly when we were writing for the FT, um, we were very conscious that we had um, a mixed audience, right? We had sort of this core British audience, then we were entering the American um, sphere, but we also had you know, a lot of attention whenever we wrote anything that had to do with India, um, with Russia. And for me personally, I was very aware that we had an FT Chinese edition. And so anything I reported, I felt needed to ring true um, to my audience in mainland China. Um, and so that brings me to Lulu. Um, so you're reporting in Chinese on China overseas for the most part, which is um, a very different topic for many uh, Chinese readers. Um, but you've got readers inside mainland China, outside. Um, what are the different expectations that they're bringing and how do you address that? Thanks, and thanks for having me as well. Yeah, indeed, I'm, I'm from a newsroom where um, we are very, very small. We are behind paywall, initially is behind paywall and we only do long form uh, reporting. So that sort of limits our um, choices, but also we have a readership from Hong Kong, Taiwan, 
mainland China, as well as, as the overseas Chinese community. So that basically means that we can't choose any China narrative. No opinion would fit the expectations from these very diverse groups who read keenly long form uh, reportings. But I think that uh, for me, when I decided, when I started to do, uh, looking for stories from the globe that would interest to a Chinese audience in terms of how, it, in terms of how China is interacting with the world, um, the, the fact that um, my audience in Hong Kong and Taiwan, mainland China will expect different things, actually, I think is an opportunity for me because I will not um, be able to just go with one way of evaluating it. I will have to be grounded to a very specific topic. I will have to follow one mining company. I will have to follow one fishing deal. I have to focus on one village that's being impacted by one project. I think that's sort of how I try to um, navigate in these quite complicated um, opinions. You will, if you would read the commenting section of any of the stories I write, there will be very competing opinions about what this is about, but then it's not gonna show in the reporting. I think that's a way um, I try to position myself. On the other hand, often when I, if I would do a story from Latin America, for instance, I would be working with a local journalist. So we will be like partners. Um, then our reporting will be sometimes used by that journalist for his or her stories in, their, in the countries they are from. So in a way, often I will help from uh, the China reporting side and then the um, facts will join and then we'll create different narratives. I think that's also a way how I try to see um, maybe there's a diversity from reportings. And last but not least, we have Alexander and um, you're writing in uh, Russian and English. Uh, you also have a podcast in English, I believe. Um, and so, Again, there's a real bifurcation, I would imagine, in your audience uh, between a domestic audience um, and the sort of international foreign relations community. Uh, maybe you could talk about that. Sure, and pleasure to be with you. Uh, I think that in my journalist past, I quit uh, the newspaper from an editorial role in 2015 and then since uh, in think tanks. So in my journalist past, that was all Russian. Uh, the problem is that interest in China is picking up, but uh, the journalist community and the papers, other media don't have enough stuff to, quarter, uh, to cover China in country. So basically going back to the Soviet times and normalization of ties following Deng Xiaoping and Gorbachev, you have only the state-owned agency and one private news agency one state-owned newspaper and two state-owned channels having their correspondence in China. Others basically, like that's what I did when I was a reporter, uh, are going to China on business trips like five or six times a year. And most of the times the paper, and a commerçant is BFT of Russia and the former Soviet space. It's a daily staple for uh, like senior government officials and oligarchs in, from Kazakhstan to Belarus to like Armenia. That's what they read in Russian. Uh, and here, surprisingly, you have just one staff writer on China who sits in Moscow, mostly covers Russia, China, because that's of interest to the readership and occasionally covers only major China stories like, oh, you have a party congress or a plenum or uh, Zhou Yunkang got arrested. So like something super big, but there is no stream of daily coverage. Uh, and I think that in Moscow uh, newsrooms, we have been just free China watchers uh, during my professional career. It hasn't changed 
despite Russia's uh, pivot to China. So unfortunately, Russia's market and Russian speaking market is very small. I don't think that uh, Kazakhstan uh, has beyond two or three reporters based in China, despite huge commercial relationship and political relationship. Uh, in my think tank capacity, you have to fill the gap of knowledge uh, in the Russian audience. So what we do in Russian is mostly cover and research the most important domestic topics in China, but then English is reserved for Russia, China angle, where I think that we have an advantage of having multiple sources and having in-depth expertise. We cannot do Chinese politics better than reporters in FT, Wall Street journals, and other will do, or the English uh, versions of like, the business aspects like Caixin and Caixin and others. So one thing that struck me about all three of you, obviously you're talking about the, well, Alexander and Anant in particular, are t- talking about the sort of bilateral uh, relationships with China uh, that maybe don't get captured. Um, but I wonder also, and Anant touched on this most explicitly, but I know Lulu, you and I have discussed this in the past, um, the question of, is there a China model? Um, whether it's for development um, or investment, um, you know, is that something that you feel that you've been able to define more through your reporting? Um, or, or is this China model sort of a still like the blind man and the elephant kind of problem um, that it, it's very hard to pin down when you really try to look at it as China interacts in your various markets? And you can pick who wants to answer that one first. <laughs> Lulu, how about you? I, I know you've reported on China investing in Eastern Europe. It's very different maybe than how they invest in Western Europe. Uh, can you tell us a bit what you've seen and what you reported on? Yeah, I mean, it definitely was the question that drives me into these stories and have done, uh, since we last met, I think I've added in the basket also uh, stories from um, the high seas or in the Amazons. Like I try to reach out a little bit more of how people see China from, you know, corners of corners of the world and how they see what China, China model could possibly mean. I don't know. I think I come to understand um, bits and bits a little bit more, but what um, I'm more interested these days is not so much as model, but an idea or an idea of an ideal, uh, which is the um, wish for develop. And where is that come from? And what kind of development are we talking about at whose cost? And who's going to define that kind of path for different people um, um, who may be on, uh, living under poverty, for instance, that as a group. I think that's that has interested me quite a bit. And I see how that idea um, you guys have been reporting from China a lot. You must see that kind of strong drive to develop, to get a better life really strong in mainland China. And often the case when these people or capital, or these capitals or these um, communities or businessmen goes to other parts of the world, they bring that quite natural drive almost like, of course you won't get rich. Why not? If you have gold in your backyard, why don't, why don't you dig it out and sell to China? Then you're rich. I think that kind of more human level communication is where, where I'm paying more attention to. Of course, you see how it reflects from policies, from bilateral relationships even. But I think um, it's more than the languages among governments it's really more of a day-to-day day-to-day communication between um values i think and i do also think there's a changing 
very subtle changing landscape there where a lot more Chinese um, coming back from Africa reflecting, what did I do there? I think that was not very right. I was just reading an article today, someone who write a whole reflection of his time in Africa thinking, did I, was, was that okay? So I think that's kind of interesting. And I was able to talk to managers who are from a Chinese mining company, for instance, who would be especially focusing on dealing with local communities. They would have all sorts of wrong ideas of how to do it or very bad um, examples of how to do it. But more and more, I think that some place where um, at least from company's perspective or certain project perspective, they were putting in more effort. I don't know if that would become a model, but I do think there's a deepening um, or at least more extensive um, ways of communicating and that will result uh, different stories, which, well, as journalists interest me, um, yeah. I think that's I was just going to interrupt for a second um, before I turn to you, Alexander, to remind the audience, um, if you do have questions, throw them in the Q&A box, please. Um, Lulu just brought up about five different questions for me, so we hope to hear from you guys. And I'm sure what Alexander is about to say will we'll bring up more as well. So don't forget, put them in the Q&A box and uh, we'll bring them up. Thank you. Uh, I, th I think that I don't uh, think I have seen a kind of applicable China model uh, that was used as a cookie cutter and applied to all of the uh, post-Soviet markets. Uh, what I've seen is that uh, it's very adaptable. And I think that uh, there is this narrative that, oh, China comes, it brings its model on how to do stuff. Uh, but what I've seen is that uh, many Chinese companies try to adapt to local realities and do that sometimes well sometimes not so well. Uh, so for example, in the Russian Far East, uh, it's basically impossible for Chinese companies to lease land. So what do they do? They have the nominal Russian passport holders who lease the land for them. But in reality, uh, it's all owned uh, by the Chinese. But of course, the Russian legal uh, partners can dump them uh, at some point and claim that the land is theirs, uh, which de facto is is true, uh, but they don't have the capital and the know-how on how to work on this land. Uh, by and large, I would say that we don't have a huge uh, Chinese diaspora uh, in the former Soviet Union. So there are pockets of Chinese dwellers. Most of them came in the 90s. Uh, there are not that many incentives to stay there. So it's a commercial relationship that is maintained. And then uh, my feeling is that uh, Chinese business people are not super comfortable to work in Russia, for example. Uh, it's mostly investment for state-owned enterprises like CNBC, Sinopec, uh, like really big guys that have the political blessing of the supreme leaders. Uh, private companies and particularly SMEs are not that successful. And uh, when I talk to some Chinese business people located here, they say, look, we like two cases that are on opposite parts of the spectrum. One is developed markets where the price for assets is really high, but we know the rules, so they can be calculated and it's kind of okay. The other are developing markets where it's all done through personal connections, sometimes bribes, but then you establish a relationship and it works for you. So you can bribe your way to success. 
Russia is in between. You pretend to be a developed market. Your assets are very high. You are very proud. Your officials wear very expensive suits and very expensive wristwatches. They're utterly corrupt. Uh, and at the end, they don't deliver what they have promised, even if you paid a bribe. So Russia is a terrible place to invest. Uh, and I think just looking at the number of private Chinese investment, uh, you need to say that probably, probably that's correct. Final point here, I think that up to a recent moment, uh, my experience with so few reporters based in China or so few reporters covering China in Moscow newsrooms is a reflection how Eurocentric Russia actually is. Russia prefers to deal with Europeans. And there was a certain racist undertone to that. So uh, we don't like Chinese investors necessarily because they are like China is a big developing country. Why do we need their money? So it's only in the recent decade after annexation of Crimea that the Russian elites and the Russian business community have woken up to the reality that, ooh, China is big. It's next door. Like there are multiple synergies and we are actually need to chase their money. And it's tough now because the Chinese can cherry pick where where they go. Before we go to Anand, I just want to say that um, I was at some conference in Beijing where uh, Vladimir Putin was there and uh, he pretty much got an earful from the Chinese businessman in the audience about this very topic. So it's certainly on people's minds. Um, Anand, did you have thoughts on this front? You're the one who mentioned the China's model, China model in the first place. And I know India is really looking to that as, as uh, sort of part of its toolkit. Right. And in, in parts, I think that you kind of hit the nail on the head by saying it's like the blind man and the elephant. And one thing that I found uh, sort of uh, appealing in, in my reporting from China was to try and question uh, some of the conventional wisdoms that people in India, that, that, that readers would have about the China model. And what I always found interesting is uh, it would depend who you ask in India. For instance, on one end of the political spectrum, there would be people saying, oh, uh, China grew so well because it's so centralized and, you know, uh, too much democracy is, is, is bad for you. Um, and on the, on, on the other side of the spectrum, you would have people who only sort of focus on the big projects, skyscrapers, high-speed rail. Uh, so I, I, I found it sort of worthwhile to try and highlight things that kind of slip under the radar. For instance, uh, what China did in, in healthcare or education, which kind of underpinned everything else that was that was to follow. Or, for instance, uh, what happens in rural China, which is a huge blind spot in, in, lots, of, in, in lots of media coverage. Um, I, I know, Lucy, you did quite a, quite a bit of stories from, from rural China, which I enjoyed reading, so I should flag that. Uh, I think an exception. Uh, but but it is a blind spot, and it's not doesn't fit into the the impression of the China model that people have that readers would have. Um, I, I visiting, for instance, rural China, I would find interesting. For instance, the kind of quality of healthcare you would have in in primary rural healthcare centers that you wouldn't get in India, for example, or or, or the kind of education that that you would have, you know, free education of, of a decent standing, even if even if it's far behind what you get in eastern China or in urban China, but the, but these are kind of snapshots of China that ordinarily people wouldn't get. So I, I kind of tried to do those kind of stories which which fall under the radar. But but I would say uh, it's it's in some in in some cases it can feel a bit of a thankless task in the sense that uh, as Alexander mentioned with the Russian media, uh, even with the Indian media, you have so few sort of boots on the ground that uh, a majority of the coverage 
I think of China and India is done by people in India, whether it's people in TV studios or whether it's op-ed writers who maybe do one or two China trips a year. Um, just in the last two years, when you had COVID plus this border crisis, which were two huge stories, you only had two Indian journalists who were, who were present on the ground, two reporters who were present on the ground in, in Beijing. And that's it. So, so I think it's a huge problem of, of underinvesting in, in trying to understand the place. Um, and, and I think the only way you get to do those stories that, that question the, the conventional wisdoms people have is to have people on the ground. But unfortunately, I think that's the single biggest obstacle that I would, that I would say that the Indian media kind of faces in, in, in covering China. That that is certainly interesting, um, and and I think it's it's probably a problem for everybody, right? With COVID, right? All these problems you guys have talked about are have been a bit exacerbated. Um, Alexander, I wanted to pull out a follow up question for you from the audience, um, from Anushka Dasharma, asking um, if Russia is also wary of China's investments. Uh, because of the Chinese government's involvement in private business. Um, has that been, it's certainly been a hot topic in the United States um, and I think elsewhere in Asia, um, has that been a topic in Russia of concern? Uh, I think that's been a topic and Russia has arrived at a model where China can take stakes in some assets in oil and gas uh, and like help to develop large projects, but they're not, controlling stakes. For example, in the Arctic, uh, Russia has built its first LNG plant. Uh, the par parent company is under sanctions. It's not on the SDM list, but it has difficulties in accessing uh, international finance. So China stepped in before Crimea annexation. And later on, that was the second deal that the Silk Road Fund uh, has done purchasing like roughly 10%. And then uh, China Development Bank and Exim Bank provided long-term loans being the political banks with no, uh, virtually no business uh, in the US. Uh, so I think that uh, for now, uh, Russia has find this equilibrium. Uh, by and large, I think that Russia is wary of Chinese investment in uh, something strategic that's microelectronics, uh, production of uh, like dual use technologies, but overall, uh, Russia would be welcoming more Chinese investment if the investment climate would be better. And I think that the, the problem is on the Russian side and then Chinese don't look Russia as super attractive. Uh, and also, uh, I think that we have huge Chinese bureaus here, like Xinhua, like all of the major state-owned newspapers are here, like state-owned media are here. I don't think about private media, uh, so like probably Phoenix was here, but that's, that's about it. Uh, and the familiarity with Russia in China is very low. Like most of the senior executives that I know read uh, about Russia in the FT uh, or Wall Street Journal. And uh, they ask me questions sometimes like, Sasha, what about this guy Magnitsky who was killed in prison? What about this guy Navalny? Uh, what about like other stories where a big American investment was imprisoned in Russia. Like, uh, what does it say? Like, should I put my money into Russia uh, if I'm not a friend of Xi Jinping and he couldn't speak a word with his buddy Vladimir Putin about my business? And uh, I think that they get deterred by the sheer uh, difficulties of doing business in Russia. 
I think you've hit a rich vein because we have another follow-up question um, from Ishkar, Ishkander Abdulev, um, who wants to know how feasible uh, close China-Russia co cooperation is, whether it's military or economic, um, in order to challenge the West and the U.S. Um, and I know that's certainly a topic that when I was reporting from China, it was a hot topic within certain Chinese circles. Um, they wanted to know if there was a possibility of a sort of uh, ties with Russia that would help China vis-a-vis -vis the West. Other people weren't so sure. Uh, what's the point of view from Russia? Uh, I think that uh, both Russia and China are at this point religious about their strategic autonomy. So it's no going to be a military alliance. But even we put confrontation from the West out of the picture for a moment, there are at least three major drivers that would bring Russia and China closer. We have a colossal border that used to be source of tensions. Now it's sealed. And both countries know that going back to confrontation is just so risky and so uh, dangerous and so expensive for two nuclear superpowers that the slogan here is not always with each other, but never against each other. That's a stabilizing factor in the relationship that China, for example, doesn't have with India. Uh, second part is the natural complementarity of the economy. Uh, Russia has abundance of natural resources needs modern technology, needs investment and capital, particularly in the light of Western sanctions. China is the exact opposite. So there is enormous potential for Russia bringing more oil, gas, coking coal, fertilizers to China. And the tr expansion of trade is uh, to demonstrate that fact. Final point is that neither is a democracy in a Western sense. So why would Xi Jinping be interested whether FSB poisoned Alexei Navalny or not? Why would be Putin obsessed about uh, violation of human rights in Hong Kong or Xinjiang? They couldn't care less, right? And that creates a certain amicable relationship because this allergen that always exists in discussion with Western leaders is just not there. And then when we come to the global uh, commons, like localization of data on the internet or cyber borders, national or versus universal access to information. Here, China and Russia as P5 nations are in the same boat uh, all the time. And then on top of that comes growing confrontation with the US where Russia sees that helping China to undermine US influence is actually beneficial to bring the US on eye level and start to renegotiate the global order where Russia is at the table with the big guys. That's the kind of strategic thinking that animates uh, the whole approach. I wanted to hand over the um, discussion for one second to Nargis Casanova. Um, so uh, she is the head of the Davis Center, um, but also uh, I thought we'd turn to her earlier when I think uh, Alexander mentioned, oh, well, Kazakh media is not so present in China, but actually, I once had the pleasure of going on a trip with uh, the two members of the Kazakh media. So uh, they certainly did their best um, to represent um, such a huge country when they were only two people. Uh, Nargis, what has come to mind for you? Thank, thank you very much. Uh, one, one important correction, I'm not uh, heading the Davis Center, <laughs> heading the program on Central Asia at the Davis Center. Um, which, uh, which you know, I'm very happy to do. Uh, I have. I, I wanted to go back a little bit to the narratives um, and ask questions uh, to all speakers, to all panelists. Uh, one has to do with the with the issue of pride. Um, well, Lulu mentioned that you know, okay, she wants to look at how people in the corners of the world kind of look at China, and if you're a small country, you know, you sort of it's easy to accept 
China's bigness and, you know, China's rise. Uh, but if you're a big one, you know, uh, if you are like Russia, you know, kind of sort of did this formerly big brother or big sister, uh, you know, how, how does that pride feature into the narratives, you know, or if you are India and other sort of, you know, kind of uh, big, uh, uh, big Asian, uh, Asian powers. So how, yeah, how, how does that kind of, how does that work in the, in the narratives? And uh, the, uh, the second question is um, the blind spots were mentioned. I think Anna uh, mentioned the blind spots. What about these kind of common narratives? Is there a common narrative on China that kind of you find disturbing, particularly disturbing and counterproductive, uh, both maybe in this kind of uh, English language uh, global media, but also in your uh, in your particular kind of uh, country uh, country narratives? Why don't we? Put that to um, Anant first, uh, if you don't mind, because um, I know for the FT, we often have an issue with um, proud responses to our, our coverage when it touches on India. Um, so how, how, do you, how do you navigate that? No, I think, yeah, I think India and China are similar in that way where uh, I think we are probably one of the few countries where, for instance, the economists' maps are always... I think when they enter the territory of India and the territory of China, I think they get torn torn out of the pages of, in, in China and India. They get like a stamp on it saying these maps are incorrect, which is that one similarity similar trait that we that we share. Um, but 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 I'd say that one thing, uh, Nargis, to your question that I uh, I'd say say over the past ten years that kind of uh, would bother me from time to time was. Uh, whether it was media in India or the West anywhere, was the kind of failure to try and get at the diversity of views sometimes that you that you get in China. It's kind of strange for me to say that now because over the last uh, eight, nine, ten years, you've seen that shrinking of that space. So, uh, so, so in in a sense, it's less of an issue. But I mean, the most common sort of example of that is, I mean, the favorite example that everyone has is is is, is the Global Times. Where, where whatever they say is kind of treated as, uh, I mean, the Holy Grail as, as speaking for Xi Jinping or whoever else. Uh, and they have such a huge footprint uh, because of the sense that people have that everyone in China has, this, has the same thing to say. So that's been kind of one sort of uh, grouse that I've had. But ironically, uh, Nargis, it's, it's harder to make that case now in Xi Jinping's China where you had this concerted attempt uh, effort by the party to remove the diversity that existed in the media and in social media. So in that sense, it's less of an issue. In terms of the question that you asked, in terms of being from a so, so quote-unquote big country, uh, I think one result of that is uh, covering the, the issues, the specific issues that you have on a bilateral basis it ends up taking a lot of time and attention. That's what your editors want. That's what you assume readers want. Um, and for me, I think it's a good thing and a bad thing. A good thing because uh, you are doing something which, as I said previously, uh, other media from around the world can't really do justice to because you have the context, you have the access to people in your own government, and you know what those issues are in the relationship. The bad thing is when you kind of have a sort of tunnel vision on how every development in China affects India or Russia or whichever country you're from, you kind of miss out on a lot of stories. And on, on a personal sort of uh, 
my own experience has been it's been very difficult uh, to sort of sell stories or pitch stories. Uh, and the first sort of question you get is why does it matter to us? Uh, and uh, stories aren't seen of sort of having intrinsic value to themselves. An example is Xinjiang, which uh, didn't get much attention at all in the Indian media until there was this border crisis with China and the relationship nosedived. And then kind of sort of people picked up to all these terrible things that were happening in Xinjiang three, four years after we knew uh, everything that was happening. So I think the fact that I think when you try and put everything in your own country's context, it can, you kind of miss out on, on, on the bigger picture. And, and, and to put it very, very simply, you can't understand the Indian-China relationship unless you sort of try and try and understand China on its own terms. So uh, for me, it's, that's why I say it's a good thing and a bad thing. Uh, when you when you try and you fall into this sort of habit of trying to look at everything from, from your own country's perspective. I wanted to flip it to Lulu now because, um, you know, I think a lot of Chinese are quite justifiably proud, you know, of what they um, and their countries and their civilization has accomplished uh, both in the past and in the most recent 40 years. Um, so, you know, when you're writing about how things actually appear from the ground, you know, how do you, how do you balance, how do you balance that? Yeah, I was thinking that exactly. Like, um, People in China would not want to read another piece that's about uh, criticizing China's project uh, somewhere else, right? Like that has been the narrative that's uh, been um, popular in the West and re-imported into China and gets a lot of um, criticism and people's just hating to receive that kind of reporting again. Um, but nevertheless, I think there's, um, despite that, that, that really is the fact and the fact that is just getting stronger and stronger um, the past two, two years, one or two years, it really, it's so difficult to, um, uh, to construct a more meaningful conversation saying like, look, this is what's happening on the ground and this is what's going wrong, what could be improved. There are many layers. No one is definitely the wrong, wrong person. There's no right solution, but it's complicated. But that's very difficult now. On the other hand, I do think there's, whenever, whenever a story does work, does make people think, and I hear nice um, positive feedbacks, it is not when the story is summarizing everything into China. It is when um, the story is very specific to one particular policy, one particular um, project or what went wrong within stakeholders of that place. That's, it could be very, very small. It could be one person's misunderstanding of a local culture, for instance. It could be a completely bland, bland, blended um, lack of knowledge of uh, how things work or completely driven by a desire for more money, for instance, than just you, you disregard everything. That kind of detailed process of uh, uh, how things how things happened and how things went through um i think it sometimes it gets through it gets across that kind of pride i want to protect this is a growing china narrative that penetrates it a little bit because because in the end of the day china chinese people they also i think despite this whole growing idea it is also very quick change everyone felt this change uh, in their life, right, in, from inside of China. And that's something they could also uh, resonate, uh, relate to if it, that's kind of change happening in other parts of the world. I think that's the kind of connections I often feel like it's possible to make, uh, to build. But whenever the attempt is to say China does what, the world sees China as what, that kind of line, I would like, 
not use at all, um, just because <laughs> it would be making the story very difficult to tell, if that makes sense. So just, yeah, I would not do that. I, uh, before we get to you, uh, Sasha, um, I wanted to also pull in um, a question that came in from Peter Frankopan, um, and I'm going to abridge it somewhat, but basically his question was, um, how are the kinds of stories that you're talking about, how are they used when they go back into China? Um, so we're, we're all very used to, um, you know, for instance, I personally adore the Global Times and I particularly adore the stories that start with the horrible Western media says that. Um, but, you know, how, how, how are your stories, right? The, the topics that you're looking at, um, Lulu, even Initium stories, um, you, you just spoke a bit about how they're received by the readers. Um, are they, do they get the same tug of war uh, when they go back into the official Chinese media and, and even the foreign ministry? Um, so Sasha, maybe you could bring that in a bit because um, I'm sure you're very attuned to that. Sure, uh, I think that never happened to me. Uh, happens to some of my think tank writing, but never happened to me as a reporter, that uh, you get a lot of kind of criticism in during personal meetings with like deputy ambassador or ambassador, because you are also privileged to write about some sensitive topics like run up to the party Congress and the lineup and who all of these people are and how do they got there. Uh, and just the desire to granularly analyze Chinese politics uh, is met with increasing pushback. Like, why are you talking about our internal stuff uh, in a public platform that very important people in Russia read? Like, oh. Uh, and then I guess that increasing number of Chinese officials, uh, I met a couple of journalists in Kazakhstan who have been pushed back very heavily. And same happens in Russia that uh, a Chinese official who is most of the time a press attaché comes to private messages and goes like, oh, this story is very wrong. You would de be denied access to China. And it's just like black painting, everything what we accomplish. Uh, and I think that uh, China used to be much more reserved about that. Uh, and uh, you could have a sensible discussion about coverage. Uh, but now it's uh, wolf warrior territory. Uh, and I think that everybody feels incentivized to be very aggressive towards reporters if they don't like a story because uh, people arguably feel that they will get promotions within the systems. And that's something that's, that's of value. And you want to do that either very aggressively or visibly. So they go on public Facebook pages or on Twitter and attack Russian reporters just as like uh, the trolls ascribed to many reporters working in China who under every single link that you publish, go and lambast how you and like other stuff, right? Uh, so on Nargis question, uh, I think that for Russia, it's very difficult to manage because indeed we used to be the Soviet Union big brother. Uh, the best visual for this uh, is the uh, two border stations in uh, Zabaikalia and Manjouli. Um, you have like this huge gate that the Soviet Union built and a tiny little old Chinese gate in the uh, late 80s. 
And now China has built a huge gate, like much more bigger than Russia, like as part of this moment. And uh, I, th- I think that's very visible. Uh, or you compare the pictures of Blagoveshensk and Heihe uh, in late 80s, like where Heihe is basically a huge village. And then now Heihe is a burgeoning town where Blagoveshensk is basically the town it was uh, in the 80s with minor adjustments. So I think that for Russia, it's just very hard to adjust to be just a country with an economy size less than Guangdong province and moving more to kind of Shandong and Sichuan province and then probably Hubei province. Uh, But that's the reality. So I I think that um, we feel very awkward and also like lack of literacy is also there. Uh, Final point on the um, narratives. I think that Russian narrative is very polarized you have people who mostly read Western publications and bad Western publications. So it's Gordon Chang and uh, it's people who say that the more we cooperate with, with China, the more undemocratic we become. And by the way, China is very fragile. Look at Evergrande and look at everything. Like China will be collapsing uh, like tomorrow and uh, that tomorrow lasts for what? Uh, many decades. The other part is unfortunately borrowing their page from the official narrative. And here we have a tendency of swiping all of the difference under the carpet. So we don't want to talk about problematic issues in our relationship. We don't want to talk about assertiveness. We don't want to talk about the future when China is very powerful again. And probably some of the historic issues will pop up and will come to bite us back. Uh, so here, this narrative is very polarizing. We don't have that much in between. Anand? I think with the, with the Indian media, Lucy, it's quite, it's quite interesting. We don't get that much of the attention. Probably a good thing that we don't get the, the kind of sort of bile that, that's reserved, I think, for the big Western media. Um, I think they, as you know, I think that occupies a lot of the attention. But I would agree with Alexander that what's new, uh, which I've seen as a very new trend, is the is the embassies in countries, not just uh, in India for sure, but also I've noticed this in Sri Lanka and Nepal, everywhere. The embassies are getting extremely sort of active in kind in trying to dictate the coverage of media in a country, which is very very new and kind of disturbing, um, and. Uh, one, for, for, I think the red lines, which which I sort of noticed, it seems like on bilateral issues, whether it's, for instance, the India-China border conflict, they kind of understand that, you know, there's nothing much that they can do and they let it go. But when they see uh, a media organization speak, I think, especially Taiwan of late uh, is like a really big red drag. Every time the Indian media reports about Taiwan, you get the Chinese embassy going on Twitter and putting out a thread or even putting out statements uh, with Tibet as well, uh, in terms of if, the, if there's an interview with the Dalai Lama or coverage uh, of, uh, of, you know, of Dharamsala, it, it brings out a statement. Um, and what I kind of found striking is that in some of the communications that, I, that I'd seen, it's the argument is that, you know, um, as Alexander said, it's an internal affairs of China, so you can't sort of report about it. Or the, the argument is that, you know, uh, your country follows a one-China policy, uh, so your media organization is bound to follow it too, which, which is not sort of seeing the, the, the difference between a, a government's policy and a media reporting on a subject. Uh, but I think that threshold for what 
passes as acceptable criticism has really, really changed over the last 10, 15 years. And I've seen that. Uh, I think that even up until a few years ago, four or five years ago, pre-Wolf Warrior era, that they weren't really responding so aggressively uh, to coverage in the way they are now. And it's and it's like a, it is a big shift where I think there was a tolerance that you know foreign media would report the way foreign media does, but uh, but I think now uh, there's a much greater effort to try and shape how foreign media organizations are are reporting on China. Uh, and as you know, part of that is to even deny access if journalists are present there. But that's becoming harder and harder to do, given that. I think a huge percentage of the foreign press corps in China is currently not in China, uh, so so that's, which is hard to deny access to when, when we don't have it. Uh, but but I would but I would sort of underscore uh, Alexander's point that I think that threshold has really changed dramatically in the last few years, uh, and their tolerance of, for what passes as as acceptable sort of criticism of China is is really decreased. We're seeing that in the way embassies react. How much of it comes from Beijing? How much of it is I think some of it's also embassy officials trying to get the attention of seniors and being as aggressive as they can. So I think it's it's a bit of a two-way two dynamic. I uh, would like to say as a counterpoint to that, that it's a particular joy when you've reported on a story and then a few weeks later, you're at a press conference and you realize that the Chinese official has read your story and is responding to it. Um, so that's always gives you a little glow, like, oh, um, I have an audience there. And, and uh, you know, there is this sort of subterranean dialogue going on um, in addition to the more blatant pushback. Um, uh, you're the of team. You're well, that's team. true, yeah. They yeah. do read your story. I don't think that they care much about what's written, not in the global media, but in localized media or, uh, if that's somebody in the MFA who is in charge of China-India relationship, he obviously has read enough stories and he can kind of mm -hmm. react or push back, but not that somebody on kind of deputy prime minister level could have read something in the local media. Well, that that is probably, there's also the language issue, right? Um, because we publish in Chinese um, and in English. Um, a, a question here from Deborah uh, Braudigam, who is... Um, she is one of the big experts on China in Africa, um, quoted by many of us. Um, but her question is, how do journalists, and she's including financial journalists, explain um, for a general readership uh, topics that require some technical expertise? And she's specifically bringing that up in the context of Chinese investment. Um, where uh, a lot of that investment is being done actually through the models that have been developed of structured finance and other style uh, commercial investments. Um, and so when they run into trouble in particular, you um, often those can be very technical negotiations. Um, and we all know that we have word count problems. Um, she's wondering how much, um, how much we're able to convey um, those uh, maybe technical subtleties um, when our audience may not be, uh, say, financial professionals. Um, I'll just say to that that I've actually had a long running dispute both within the FT um, and with external uh, sources on um, Chinese investment overseas. Uh, for instance, Derek Scissors over at the AEI uh, has a really big database. But the question is, how do you differentiate between say, uh, Chinese investment in a project uh, that they're then going to own 
uh, versus a foreign country bringing a Chinese company in as a subcontractor uh, for the project that that country is then going to own, but that they still have to pay debt on. Um, so obviously there's a lot of, um, a lot of technical uh, perception subtleties here. Um, and how do we convey that? And I'm gonna throw that at Lulu first uh, because she often does cover um, Chinese investments overseas. Um, how much are you trying to bring in those subtleties or are you just looking at the sort of more general picture of uh, what influence those or what impact those investments have? So a lot of uh, readers from mainland China that who reads in Ishim are also reading Financial Times and New York Times and etc. They are often one of the more picky readers. Um, therefore, I, it was it would be more um, for me more important for me to not summarize it as a bad trap diplomacy because that would be sort of repeating what they would already read in many other um, media in many other opinion pieces. But what I find really useful, I'm probably repeating myself, is when I'm making it very concrete of one thing. For instance, I did this one um, reporting from Congo. And DRC, where this project falls into what uh, Lucy just now described, uh, it is a, a basically if you promise me this much right to mine, I'm gonna give you some infrastructures, uh, road, bridge, hospitals, etc. <clears throat> Um, if we, if the, this is sometimes used as example of the China's model in Africa, then it's a one-liner, and then it's not very useful for I think for my readers to understand what it really is. But the the story I did from the ground is simply tell what this road they build looks like. What is the hospital they build looks like? Is it functioning? Who is going there? Um, what kind of budget is putting into it? What is the problem of this infrastructure um, project? And what kind of scope that echoes to the mine, mine itself? What kind of importance is that mine for China? That kind of much more concrete comparison of what's going on on the ground, I think that um, that then answers some of the questions I think some of my uh, uh, readers would ask is like, is that really win-win situation? Uh, are people really winning from these kind of deals? So <clears throat> that, that way, I guess I don't have to summarize it as a, um, a theme, but uh, it offers some insight into the specifics. And supposedly if you have more of such specifics, then uh, readers will build their ideas um, uh, with more layers. I hope that helps. Sasha, how about for you? I know that I once ran into trouble um, reporting on one of the China-Russia pipelines. I can't remember which one because the Chinese negotiators were telling me, no, they didn't have a deal. They had not settled a price. And then meanwhile, Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin had just signed something saying, yes, they did have a deal and they didn't mention the price. So, you know, obviously I think you have a lot of different economic models when you look at the Chinese um, investments in Russia. I think that they're different even by each pipeline and each LNG plant. Um, how much is your readership aware of that? And how much do you need them to be aware of that? And to tie it back to Deborah's question, um, how much are you serving as an educational um, platform in trying to tell them what are these arrangements? Sure, first Deborah, thanks for your work from all of us, we read you a lot. Uh, second, I think that Lucy, you're spot on. We have a uh, word count problem. And I don't think that the papers want to be overly technical. Like you don't need to explain a substance of a contract 
by like using the same language that's in the contract. You can explain the basic mechanics and logics of what's there. You can use some of the language that's in there, but you should uh, bring it to a minimum to make the reader understand what's there. And then some tiny details get omitted. So I, all the time when I write uh, or used to write a story, I'm trying to imagine that I'm on a date and I'm telling a funny story about, oh, there is this pipeline and that's the disagreement about the price. And uh, I think that the more easy and entertaining, but also granular and capturing all of the major details that need to be in there, the better it is for a general uh, reader. Uh, the problems that we have most of the times, like that I encountered, uh, my best story was about the uh, disagreements between CNPC and Rosneft on the price for uh, Russian oil going uh, through the Mocha to Skavaradino, like the separate pipeline going from this big ASPO. Uh, Commerzant was the first to uh, report on that. That was our scoop, uh, very well sourced on the Russian side. And I had a confirmation on the Chinese side. And the uh, spat was about a very particular point in the contract on the transportation fees. And uh, the Russians were eager to tell their story. And then the Chinese were very kind of reluctant, although we had a relationship with local CNPC guys and uh, uh, local embassy guys who were kind of giving us part of the detail up to some point. But once they realized that it's going to become public and it's going to become a huge kind of public scandal, they backed off. So I don't think that they are very experienced, at least in the Russian market, in telling their story and being proactive. I've witnessed a couple of times when uh, companies come to a newsroom and say, hey, here is like a very nice video or whatever. Like we, we, we go to a restaurant and you write that we do this very important investment. But once there is a crisis situation where we really need both stories, because like your Russian sources, for example, can be misleading and definitely present their own version of the event. So you badly need the Chinese version of the events and they are absent. Uh, so I think that's more of a problem. And then final point, a lot of what's in the contract can be commercial, uh, like can be classified and uh, you need to kind of really uh, be based on explanations by provided by your sources rather than looking at the contracts in detail. So you omit a lot of details because you don't have seen the agreement. And I think a lot of these details become more important when a project falls apart, uh, right? Rather than when you're going in where everything's looking rosy and the headline's easy. Um, Ananth, a lot of these renegotiations, sort of the litmus test or the, the canary in the coal mine has been the countries around India. Um, so Sri Lanka obviously got a lot of attention, but also Myanmar, Pakistan. Um, uh, I'm not sure if there have been any major projects within India that have required renegotiation, um, but how interested is your readership and and how do you go about explaining this vocabulary question that Deborah's talking about? No, it's a great question. And I think that it is difficult when you not only have a word count, but I think time deadlines. Uh, so I, I, I took a year off uh, and as, as a visiting fellow in Brookings, India, I, I did this project where I was essentially trying to map out every Chinese investment that there was in India. 
And the, the two kind of sort of, um, and, and we published that in, in 2020, and the two kind of big problems that I had was, uh, one was that, um, you know, when you have these MOUs being signed and uh, these announcements made, uh, there's very little follow-up on after the first day of this big deal being announced as to how much of it actually gets translated on the ground, how much of it is just like a headline announcement that just doesn't see the light of day. And in India, we haven't. We ha- I had an additional problem of no sort of centralized data from the Indian government where every ministry would have its own kind of data and there wasn't sort of authentic information to go by. So it was a very, very difficult uh, sort of a, a project to do. And I mean, and when you have a year to do that and you still are unable to do it uh, when you're working on a time deadline for a newspaper, there's very little scope to go beyond the, say, the big announcement and actually look at how much of it is going to materialize. Uh, and I think that the big challenge for us is to, for instance, we look at Sri Lanka, which you mentioned, Lucy, there's this sort of tendency where one project becomes reflective or symbolic of an entire sort of relationship, which isn't often the case. Like in Sri Lanka, it's Hambantota, which was this, uh, this sort of big white elephant, this port deal that never happened and left a huge amount of debt. There was corruption allegations involved with the Rajapaksas. Um, and that became sort of symbolic of China and Sri Lanka. Uh, but uh, I would have Sri Lankan officials sort of uh, banging their heads on the table and telling me that, you know, the, you guys are all writing about Chinese debt in Sri Lanka. But if you actually look at the percentage of debt uh, that's that's Chinese debt, it's it's it's, it's nowhere a majority of, of Sri Lanka's rural debt. So th- the point that I'm making is sometimes it's unavoidable to, to sort of get sucked into that where one huge project goes wrong, whether it's in Sri Lanka, Pakistan, Myanmar, and that kind of becomes emblematic of, of actually sometimes what's a much more complicated situation. And just as with this whole debt trap diplomacy uh, idea that's become really, really deeply entrenched, there is no question there is a debt problem with many, many Chinese projects, and that's that's how that's how they're done. But then that's but is it can you actually make a case that this is part of sort of this well-orchestrated scheme uh, where it's planned and sort of enforced on countries? I think it's a much harder sort of thing to prove, but yet it's kind of taken on a life of its own. So I think for journalists, it's kind of difficult uh, to get at that complexity. Uh, and I would also add that access to information is a big, big problem. I think uh lack of transparency, not just from the Chinese side, but from the partner country side is a huge, huge problem. I think in every country that I've seen where they just don't want to share that information, share the terms, it often comes out later. For example, to go back to the Sri Lanka example, that they were giving a 99-year lease on, on land, which became a huge scandal, and then they had to renegotiate. That was never made public. Uh, so I think that oftentimes it's incumbent on the governments, even if it's, even if China is famously sort of opaque with, with making information public. I think the, the thing that I find quite interesting, it's the partner countries and their sort of role in all of this that, that, that sometimes doesn't get that much attention. Uh, speaking personally, I've always found you find a lot of details in generally the local media of a given country as to what um, the negotiations are. Although sometimes it's hard to figure out what if those are the actual details and what's been uh, coming out from some of the negotiators. Um, We have another question from Anushka Dasharma, which is a question, I have to say it's a journalist's question. Um, It warms the cockles of my journalist heart, which is how do you deal uh, with the sort of discrepancy between China coverage by journalists and China coverage by op-ed writers. Um, And I'd like that to kind of make that a little more contemporary by adding in, in this time of COVID, when, you know, 
many people no longer have the uh, kind of access um, on the ground that we had hoped to have in the past. Um, so how do those of us who started as reporters avoid becoming simply op-ed writers? Um, and, and how do you as reporters uh, with our interest in sort of the physical details, how do we counter the narratives that an op-ed writer can put out? Um, and uh, all of you, I think, have a different perspective on that. Sasha's grinning because he's sometimes an op-ed writer, so you can... Uh, well, you're saying op-ed writer as if it's a bad thing, right? <laughs> well, I said it was a question for journalists. <laughs> well, there, there, there are different uh, op-ed writers, even in your pages. I, I think that it's uh, sometimes hard for journalists because like NFT journalists do write op-eds. Uh, and uh, it's not only like Gideon, uh, who is an op-ed writer, uh, like, and uh, is making that for a living. Uh, sometimes people who are like normal reporters, Yuan Yang, like yourself and others, have to write an op-ed. Uh, and I think that these are very well-informed uh, op-eds and they make a certain point that uh, you cannot necessarily make in your reporting. And it's just uh, pushing the envelope on how we think about uh, China. So I'm not seeing that as a, as, as a bad thing necessarily. Uh, of course, being well-informed, traveling regularly is uh, a pro, uh, but it's not that you can just really limit, like uh, we first test your HSK level and like how many characters you know before you are allowed to write an op-ed on China. Uh, anybody can, can make an op-ed on China, like Thomas Friedman even can write op-eds on China. <laughs> um, and not that we all the time agree with him, uh, but well, here we are. Uh, and I think that diversity here is, uh, is, is, is a good thing. Like people who are well-informed can figure out which op-eds are of quality and are bringing our discussion further and which are what punditry, like the worst sides of punditry are. Ananth, I have to confess the question was actually asked to you since you had mentioned, you know, how prevalent the Indian op-ed writers are. Um, so what's what's your response? Yeah, so the, the newspaper that I work for, uh, as Alexander said, actually, they we, we I mean, I do reporting for the news pages, um, but we are, uh, I mean, free to write op-eds as well. And reporters do write op-eds. Um, but the kind of expectation is the reporter's op-ed would be very different from, say, like a well-established, say, someone who's like a former minister or a politician who can just opinionate. So reporter's op-ed would, would not really have your personal view on an issue, but it would try to uh, kind of present a, a layered view on a topic in a way without the sort of structure of a news story. So I think we, we are kind of comfortable uh, doing those kind of op-eds, uh, but I would I would sort of endorse what Alexander said, where where there's a huge variety of of, of what constitutes an op-ed on China. It can be well argued, it could be, or it could just be somebody ranting. And, and frankly, we have all sorts. Um, and uh, for me, it was also interesting personally. Where before coming to this newspaper job, I uh, working for a weekly magazine, you're kind of in this strange world where you're in between being a a reporter and an op-ed writer because you're expected to present a detailed magazine article with viewpoints, but with reportage. So I think it's just a question of sort of being comfortable doing that and just making sure that, uh, you know, if you are making an argument that that you've backed it solidly with, with reporting, I think reporters only feel comfortable doing that. Uh, and I don't think that 
uh, at least I don't see it as, as a reporter to just uh, opinionate without like an op-ed that I would do would be based on, say, a reporting trip to a particular place. Uh, so you would have that information that you're basing your observations on. Uh, but uh, but but the big question now, as you said, Lucy, is when not, when you don't have ground reporting that you can count on because you aren't in China. Uh, what I've I found is it's thinking about that. I I found that I'm doing far less op-ed writing because of I think my sense of sort of unease of doing that from 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 a distance. So I I feel that so now in, in the the few months where I've been reporting on China from outside China, from India, and now from Hong Kong, um, I, I tend to do more news reporting for that reason where I can't do that kind of ground reporting unless it's it's on a Hong Kong-related subject where I can sort of enter that, that kind of op-ed space. I don't know if that makes sense. Uh, but but the short answer to, to the original question is I think sometimes it's best not to think about what your newspaper is publishing in the edit pages because it's out of your hands and thinking about it just adds levels of stress, especially when it's a, when it's a poorly sort of, I know reporters in every newspaper who, who cover China and other topics have been through this where your paper gets hammered for, for publishing a, a, well, a, a very poorly argued piece. So I think the best thing is you, you, you let the news pages do their thing and let the edit pages do their thing. And, and I think we still have this old fashioned sense. I think this wall is crumbling in, in news organizations now, especially when you have a website. But I think that uh, we're still a very much print driven sort of enterprise and we still have a sort of very firm separation. If I do an op-ed story, it goes to an entirely different department. It's not the same people who, who, who edit your news story. So we still kind of uh, hold on to that division. And Lulu, I'm, you've been arguing consistently for the, uh, <laughs> the the preeminence of facts on the ground, um, but I'm wondering, has COVID uh, changed your approach and ability to do the kind of stories you want to do? Yeah, I haven't been on the ground since uh, until actually uh, half a month ago, I went to Brazil again for another field story, first time since COVID hit. Um, I think the interesting thing is, uh, the, again, it's the newsroom I work for, uh, even the opinion channel that we run uh, opinion pieces, these opinion pieces are like 10,000 wo 10, words long. <laughs> it's, we don't, it's kind of interesting that demand from our readers are very specific. We want very nuanced, complicated messages. Don't tell me A is B, like, we don't want to hear that. So that's kind of a privilege, I guess, for us as editors and journalists, we, we just, we don't have to give a quick opinion on anything. Uh, um, so yeah, that gives us quite quite some space. To me, overall, apart from what uh, where I work for, overall, what I find most problematic is an op-ed hided in a news. That, does that make sense? It's actually an opinion piece, but it presented as if it's a news story or as if, as if it's a feature story. Like um, that would be, I think that's the choice a lot of editors and journalists. I, sometimes I would read a story, uh, a piece where I think this is one, journalist A, journalist B, this is editor A and editor B. It's not, it's not consistent because there's a, um, definitely, yeah, as Lucy said, I think this is a question of this very specific journalist journalism in the uh, in the play um and and i myself actually really rarely uh, write any opinion piece i think my opinions are very um it's almost always in those uh, reporting stories so it's uh, it's just a personal choice i think I'm going to keep you on. Uh, we have only about four more minutes. So I think I would like as a last thought um, from each of you, um, what kind of 
stories do you see within your own sphere um, that you wish uh, that the sort of, let's call them the Anglo-American uh, global audience um, was aware of? So, so, so what stories, you know, we've talked a lot about the, the things that you guys focus on and um, the specific audiences you focus on, but, but what do you feel is very important there that should be part of the global discussion more and, and isn't? Um, and uh, everybody's looking around. So <laughs> does anybody want to answer first? Sure, I will uh, I'll take a stab at it. I think for me, uh, I mean, it's maybe it's an unfair expectation, but sometimes I feel like uh, the there's a lot of sort of uh, the complexity of, of, a, of a particular issue is often missing. And I, I can't blame, uh, say, a, a news organization that's covering, say, China's relationship with 200 countries to get that detailed right with every country. So it's an unfair expectation. But for me, the most glaring is uh, because over the last 18 months, the biggest story on the India-China front has been the boundary crisis. Uh, you ha you've had pretty much uh, the biggest uh, loss of life uh, since the 1960s, uh, you, ha you had a clash in June 2020, and, uh, and you've had a crisis that's still not resolved. You actually have tens of thousands of troops on both sides that are still sort of deployed uh, along the border. And it's, it's a story that the Indian media is still following, but it's kind of completely fallen out of attention, I think, of, of international media after the initial clashes. And I think one thing that sort of struck me in, in, in a lot of the coverage is that... Um, it, it, I don't think it's, it, it, it seemed to be like there's a lot of surprise in the fact that India and China had a border that hasn't been demarcated uh, or, uh, you know, it, it seemed to be written from, from a point of view of discovering this problem that's been there for so long. Um, and so to, to put it very, very simply, I, I just said, I, I think that level of complexity is sometimes missing. And I think the best way to deal with that is to have reporters speak to people in your own country and get that view rather than, say, get a Gordon Chang or, or someone else, not to beat up on him, but, but since Alexander mentioned his name, uh, I'd say there are ways to remedy that by speaking to enough voices in that particular country and doing that. Uh, but of course, uh, I completely understand the realities of media today that they're competing priorities that there's much of the other stories on their agenda. So as I said, it's an unfair criticism, but, it, but at the same time, it really struck me over the last 12 to 18 months looking at this huge story. And for me, the way it was quite poorly covered generally uh, in, in the international media. In defense of Gordon Chang, if he's listening, I will say that he was one of the first people uh, in the US who picked up on the warming China-Russia relationship. Uh, so yeah, everybody has their own insights, I'm sure. Um, Sasha, what, what story do you feel uh, you are intently focused on, but, but that is not really getting the global hearing? I think that my particular little kingdom of Russia-China relationship gets a lot of media attention, including in mainstream media. And I think that a lot of pretty good coverage. I think that only after I moved from a newsroom to a think tank room, I realized how important the work that journalists do is for, for everybody. Because like going and asking the right questions and checking various people and checking the facts that you get is really important. Not necessarily like think tanks and uh, researchers can go really deep sometimes, but like this broad picture of uh, a country of China's magnitude and complexity cannot be done by anybody other than reporters. So the current 
lack of foreign journalist access to China or limited access is really heartbreaking. And in defense of uh, kind of English language mainstream media, I think that A, there are multiple media now beyond the big papers or bureaus of Bloomberg and Reuters. And basically a lot of aspects are covered. If you look good enough, you can find an English language resource that covers feminist agenda or like very niche environmental agenda or rural agenda. Like there is a lot out there. We might be probably biased because we read primarily Chinese sources too, but I think that there is a lot of stuff in English that's actually good. Uh, not necessarily all of this nuance can find their ways to the pages of FT or New York Times because the editor sits like hours and hours away and uh, thinks about the reader and doesn't include all of the little details and complexity. Like you all know the tensions between journalists in the field and the newsroom. But I think that broadly, I would speak in defense of uh, mainstream media. They're doing pretty, pretty decent job at the time when covering China gets increasingly challenged for the reasons uh, we discussed. And Lulu, what are you seeing that you wish would get better coverage? Can I make a rather silly wish as we <laughs> toward the end of the year anyway? I wish actually to see more um, stories of individuals that's not positioned in a very politicized theme. Individual stories for the individual's sake. Um, to, I know it's difficult and impossible with the kind of news uh, space uh, pace we're looking at. It's, and there's probably no space, or, or if there's any space for individual voice, it's served as an intro, or it's served as a, you know, some kind of color to a more serious topic. But if it's possible, I would really much like to read more, um, basically stories to tell you why, why people are saying what they say, why they believe in what they believe, and, you know, the kind of things they stop believing or start to questioning and don't put that into a, a box of China. I don't know. That's, I know that's too much to wish for, but. <laughs> I'd like to read those too. Uh, James, I think I'm going to hand it over to you, but I'd just like to first say thanks to everybody. And also thanks to our audience uh, for joining us in the middle of a morning. Uh, I hope you've enjoyed it. I hope it's been useful. And I do appreciate the people who've sent in questions. James? Actually, I, I think I'll have the honors of... Sorry, Nargis, Nargis. No, 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 no problem. No problem. Um, <laughs> sort of divided. <laughs> um, this has been a great conversation, exactly what we were hoping for uh, with James when we we're conceiving the, the, uh, the idea. And I, I see it as an, as a, as a, uh, as an early Christmas, New Year, present to, to us and the, <laughs> the audiences. Uh, and big thanks to our wonderful speakers, um, Anand Krishnan, Kuilu uh, Luning, and Alexander Gapuev. Uh, and uh, to our moderator, wonderful moderator, uh, Lucy Hornby, who was actually the, the dream moderator for this, <laughs> for this session. Uh, and following up on what uh, Alexander said, uh, big thanks to, to, to all of you and your colleagues for, uh, for reporting, uh, reporting on China, explaining China to, uh, to us in the world. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm representing, <laughs> sort of representing the, the academic uh, regional studies community you know, we wouldn't be able to do much without uh, uh, without your um, 
reporting for sure. Uh, and big thanks to uh, my partner in crime, James Evans, uh, and also to my colleague uh, at the um, at the Davis Center, Chris Chris Martin, who helped us to make this uh, possible. Uh, to our co-sponsors, the Fairbank Center and the Lakshmi Mittal Center, and. Uh, and that's been uh, it's been the last event in our series um, this this semester and this calendar year, but we will be back in 2022. Uh, so please stay tuned in. Thank you very much.